A guy named A.W. Tozer was a pastor, author, speaker. He died in 1963, so it's been a while since he's been uh, around. But he wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. It's a short little book in which he kind of walks through the attributes of God. And he describes them biblically, what it means to say that God is holy, or God is majestic, or God is righteous. But it's the first sentence of the book that has always stuck with me since I read it years ago after becoming a Christian. The very first sentence of the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer says this, he says, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? And I think what Tozer's going at there is that the understanding of God that you have in your mind and your heart forms the foundation, the very foundation of your whole life, so that everything else, job, career, family, everything, faith, everything is built on this foundation. And that's why it's so important that you understand who God is. Now, there's another quote by C.S. Lewis that I think is interesting too, and I know we quote Lewis all the time around here, but this is one I don't think that I've ever mentioned before. He just says this, I don't want my image of God, I want God. I don't want my image of God, I want God. See, Lewis says that this view of God that we have may not be accurate. It may not represent who God really is. It might be our image of God is faulty. And he said, I don't want my image of God, who I think God's like, who I've determined what he should be like, according to my sense of intuition, my sense of right and wrong, my sense of how he should work in the world. I don't want that. I want the real God. It'd be interesting if we'd have had time that when you came in here this morning, if I had have each of you write down, maybe take five minutes and write down what you think God's like. And then take all those and see how much they're alike or, or to see how accurate they are. Because really the question isn't, are all our views alike? The real question is, do our views of who God is conform to the Bible? That's where God has revealed himself. Or have we come up with our own image of God? Psalm 50, verse 21, and God says this, These things you have done, and I have been silent. Now here's the key part. You thought that I was like one like yourself. See, God says, we all have this tendency to think that God is like us. That this false image of God that we created oftentimes is a reflection of who we are and what we value. Blaise Pascal said, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and man's been returning the favor ever since. God created us in his image, and now we've, through a distortion of who God is, have created him in our image. If Tozer's right, and if the most important thing about you and me is what we believe about God, then it is absolutely essential that we don't create a false image in our mind. See, there's all kinds of misconceptions that people have. One misconception that I think a lot of us struggle with is that we think of God as kind of a cop, a police officer. 
I, I told the story the other day in a parenting seminar we did here in the auditorium. But, but whenever I was 16, some buddies of mine were coming back from the Lake of the Ozarks. And they egged me on, which probably wasn't hard because I was so full of myself, egged me on to see how fast the car would go. Well, I had gotten a hand-me-down car, and it was a big black Buick with a V8 engine. And it turns out it would go at least 90 miles an hour. That's what the policeman told me, at least. Uh, so I got caught doing a 90 and a 55. And uh, I, I was so naive, I told the police officer, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I told him there was another black car that went whizzing by me and pulled off the road the last exit. And he didn't believe me. Um, but let me tell you, that what happens when you get caught doing a 90 and 55 and you're only just turned 16 is they make you follow them to the police station where they fingerprint you and take your mug shot and then hold you on bail until you bail yourself out or you get a hold of your parents. I'm not sure which is worse, you know. So, so Dave's always said that he's looking for someone who can find that mug shot of me somewhere. I have a feeling it would show up on that screen at some point in time. Let's hope it can't be found. But ever since that moment, every time I see a police officer, my heart just, I don't know if you're that way, probably not, because you haven't done stuff as stupid as me. But, but every time I see a police officer, I'm not doing anything wrong. And I just get this panicky feeling inside, like I've screwed up and I'm going to get caught. Well, I think that's the view of many of us have about God, so that when we think about God, we think... Am I following the rules and he's going to catch me? And when that's our view of God, what motivates us in our Christian life is fear. Fear of being caught by God who's breaking the rules. Some people have a view of God that's more like a banker. You know, you take out a loan from the bank and then you pay him back and they view God as a banker so that you're always trying to pay back God for what he's done for you. That's the kind of thinking behind the statement, uh, look at all that God's done for you. Can't you at least do this for him? Jesus died for you. Can't you at least obey what he wants you to do here? Can't you at least serve in children's ministry? I mean, he did die for you after all. <laughs> you know, and then, then that, when that becomes how you think of God, you start being motivated by guilt. There's all kinds of misconceptions about God. How about the genie in the bottle? You start thinking that God is the one who gives you what you wish. And you know that that's the trap you're falling into. That's the misconception you're starting to believe. That when you don't get what you want and you get angry as if somehow God promised to give you your every desire. Or there's the talent show judge. Kind of God is Simon Cowell. You know, you all these shows now, American Idol, The Voice, America's Got Talent, and they have this panel of judges, these talent evaluators, and they're going to evaluate you, and they're going to criticize you, and they're going to critique you. And sometimes we feel like that's what our life is like. We're on display, and God is always critiquing and evaluating and seeing where we messed up so that he can point it out to us. Or God is a treadmill. You know, if you've walked or run on a treadmill before, you know that the treadmill always wins. It keeps going. You're the one that has to quit. And some of you have a view of God that way so that we're always trying to perform, always trying to do more, always trying to prove our commitment through how busy we can be. Our performance begins to define our faith when we see God as a treadmill. Or maybe lastly, God is kind of an iPod. And one of the great things about iTunes was that it 
it, caused, it allowed you to be able to separate particular songs from an album. Before you had to buy all the songs, even the one you didn't like. But with iTunes came along, they had the ability now to just p- pick the songs that I like and buy them. Well, that's what we do with God. We find the parts of God that we like for whatever reason. They're comforting. They give hope. But the parts we don't like, the parts that challenge our lifestyle, the parts that call into question how we live or think, the parts that put demands upon us, well, we leave those behind, like the bad songs on the album that we didn't want. Or maybe you just know God at all. I mean, how does that affect you? I don't know if the, Je- the name Jeffrey Dahmer rings a bell to you or not, but in, in my day growing up, he was kind of the personification of evil. He was this horrendous serial killer slash cannibal who killed 17 young boys between uh, 1978 and 1991. Jeffrey Dahmer eventually was killed himself while he was incarcerated. And there was a documentary on him in which his father shares what was going inside his son's head during uh, the time he grew up and as he was committing these horrible crimes. And the dad speaking now for his son says, this is how my son's thinking. If it all happens naturalistically... In other words, if if nature's all there is, or if there is no God, then what's the need for a God? Can't I set my own rules? Who owns me? I own myself. If there's no God to be accountable to, if there's no God to listen to, then don't I get to determine what's right and wrong? Don't I own myself? Can't I do whatever I want? Dahmer himself said essentially the same thing to Stone Phillips in 1994 in an interview on Dateline NBC. He said, look, if there's no God and we all just came from the slime, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior and keep it within acceptable ranges? See, here's my point. What you believe about God, what your image of God is like, is determinative of how you'll live your life. It is absolutely crucial It is of the most significant, massive importance that we have an accurate, biblical understanding of who God is and how he's at work in this world. It's in that context that we read in James chapter 1, continuing our series to this book of the Bible. It says, James 1.16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. See, James is afraid that we are going to be deceived about who God is. He's afraid that we're going to develop some sort of misconception about God. He's warning us. Just like C.S. Lewis warned us that we could worship not the real God, but an image of God, one that we've made in our own image. And because James believes what Tozer believes, that who you think God is is the most important thing about you, He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James says, don't be deceived. God is good. Psalm 52.1 says that the goodness of God endures forever. Now when we say that God is good, what we're saying is, is that his very nature, at the core of his being, God is perfect. First John says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
what he's saying is that God is absolutely perfect. So in him, there is nothing defective. There is nothing sinful. There is nothing substandard. There is nothing you can add to God to make him better. That is counter to everything we have in life. Because everything in our life that's good, we can imagine being better. We had a good meal, but we could imagine a better meal. We had a good vacation, but we could imagine a better one. We like our house, but we could think of some ways to improve it. But there is nothing you can add to God to make God any better than he already is. He is absolutely and utterly perfect. And of course, these verses teach that everything good in our world comes from this good and gracious God. Every good thing in your life and my life is from him. Did you sleep well last night? That is a gift from God. Did you have food to eat this morning? You owe that to God. Do you have a friend to talk to and share life with? That's from God. Do you have a job that you can go to and provide for yourself? That is one of God's good, good gifts. Did you wake up this morning, your heart was beating, and your eyes could see, and your ears could hear? Did you have a desire to come and worship God? Do you know a God who answers your prayers? All of those are gifts of God. They are what testimony to what Psalm 119 says. You are good, and what you do is good. And it's why when God spoke the world into creation, he could look around at all that he created, and Genesis 1 tells us that he declared it all very good, because God is good, and God does good. Psalm 33.5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. But perhaps God's goodness is most on display, is most visible in the way he treats sinners. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. See, what, Je what, what Jesus is saying is he's calling us to live differently, to be good to those who persecute us, to pray for those who hate us, to love our enemies. Now here's why, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he, for God himself, makes his Son rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, God says, the, way, the reason that you can love your enemies is because I loved you when you were my enemy. Here's the amazing thing. When people turn away from God, when they rebel against God, when they oppose God, when they belittle God, when they ignore God, when they stand in opposition to God, what's God's reaction? To be good to them. To love them. To be gracious and kind to them over and over and over so that he causes the sun to rise. He causes the rain to come, not just on the Christian, but the non-Christian too. Do you have health? That's from God. If you're sick, can you go to a doctor? That's God's goodness to you. Have you ever been able to take a vacation? That was a sign of how much he loves you. Have you ever had a good meal or seen a good movie or had a good friend? All those things are signs 
that there is a good God who rules the universe and who loves you no matter how much you run from Him. And so what's the purpose of God's goodness, inexhaustible goodness to us? What's the purpose? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you catch that? The reason God is good to sinners is not so that they'll take advantage of it. It's not so that we'll assume it or presume upon it. But those good acts of God are like a path, a trail that's leading us into a relationship with Him. Now how do these verses, don't be deceived, Every good and good gift comes from your Father above. How do those verses fit into the context of James chapter 1? Why does James bring up the goodness of God here at this point? Well, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we've been going through the book of James and we've been looking at, or that James opens the book with the discussion of trials. The kinds of trials, the kind of difficulties, the kind of hardships, the kind of challenges that every single person faces. And so right in the middle of the discussion on trials, James brings up the issue of God's goodness. And so I think the first point we're supposed to get is this. Our view of God, our view of God will determine how we interpret what God is up to in our life, especially in the face of trials and challenges. Our view of God will determine how we interpret what God is doing in our life when we're facing trials. See, James thought that in the middle of trials and difficulties and challenges, we were most vulnerable to being deceived about who God is. See, when you're in the face of, when you're in the midst of trials and difficulties and hardships and challenges, you might be tempted to interpret that, to think that that means that God is against you, that God has forgotten you, that God doesn't care about what's going on, that God doesn't know about the challenges that you're facing. You might think that the challenges and hardships in your life are evidence that God's not good. I learned from a guy named Paul Tripp who spoke at a couple different conferences here at the Crossing as well as I've read several of his books. I I learned this important thing. You don't live your life by facts. You live your life by the interpretation of those facts. Example, and forgive my stereotypes here, I'm just trying to make a quick point. Um, A husband stays late at work almost every night, works late. That's the fact, okay? Now, the wife interprets that fact, that he works late every night, to mean that he's not committed to her, that he's not committed to their relationship, that he doesn't want to be around her. The husband interprets his working late every night to mean that he's really committed to his family because he's working hard to provide for them. Well, you know the argument that is brewing. You know the argument that's coming. Is it based on the facts? No. Everybody agrees with the facts. He works late every night. It's the interpretation of the facts that's radically different. One interpreting it to mean he doesn't care about me. The other one interpreting it to mean I do care about her. Take a high school student who comes in after school and sports and everything else and immediately heads down to their room. That's the fact. That happens night after night after night. The parent interprets that as, 
don't they care? Don't they want to have a relationship with me? What, why are they so off to themselves? Something bad happening? The high school kid thinks, boy, I bet they're really proud of me. I'm getting down here and get my homework done. The facts are they get downstairs every night after school and sports and all that. But they've interpreted it in wildly different ways. You do not live your life based on the, the facts, but on how you interpret the facts. You do not live your life based on who God is, but how you interpret who God is. So if you begin, here's the warning, if you begin to interpret the facts of your life, the challenges you face, the trials and difficulties, to mean that God doesn't care, if you take those hardships that come into every single person's life and walk away thinking God is against me, then you're being deceived. That's what James is saying. Because in your trials, God is not against you. God is good. Every good thing in your life comes from him. Even the trials that you're facing are a sign of God's goodness to you because he has sent them to you to shape you and mold you and mature you and to make you more Christ-like. I want to show you this in the scripture. It's the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Okay, here are the facts. Paul and his ministry partners, his buddies, are undergoing extreme hardship. To the point that they think they're going to die, they're depressed, and they're despairing. Now, if you and I were in that situation, I think we'd at least be tempted to say, where's God? I mean, I'm the Apostle Paul. I've done all this. I've made all these sacrifices and commitments. Where's God? I thought he was supposed to be faithful. I thought he was supposed to be good. Doesn't he care? Doesn't he know? Watch how Paul interprets that fact, though, those set of facts. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says, here's how I interpret the facts. I interpret the facts of all the hardship, all the difficulty, all the, 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 the strain and stress of life I go through to be a sign that God loves me and God's at work in my life and he sent this to me to teach me this incredibly important truth that I need to rely on him and not myself. And then he uses this as a paradigm to think about the rest of life. He interprets God's rescue and God's deliverance here to understand the rest of his life. Verse 10. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Okay, now, time out for a second. Look, eventually one of these challenges in life kill us, right? Because we, we all die. That's why Paul says God raises the dead. So even in the midst of death, we know that we have hope and victory because God raises the dead. But until that point that God takes our life, until that point, Paul says, I'm going to interpret every peril as a chance to trust God who delivers me. Do you see that he didn't live his life on the facts, but on the interpretation of the facts? And he interpreted from the base foundational belief, the core conviction of his life, that God is good. Now imagine how radically different your life and my life would be when trials and difficulties and hardships come. Instead of complaining, 
instead of trying to get away from them and escape them and pray that God would take them away, instead of doubting God and being frustrated with God and wondering when he's going to change and get on board with what we want him to do, imagine instead of that if we just said, God, look, I know you're good. I know you're up to good here. I can't see it right now, but I know you're up to good. What is it I need to learn here, God? What are you doing in my life? Boy, that's different. Back to verse 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, another thing we see here is that God's goodness is always under attack. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Go back there where Adam and Eve lived in a world without sin. And Satan comes in the form of a serpent to start to tempt Eve. God had said you can eat from any tree of the garden except the tree in the middle, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes and tempts her to eat from that tree. And at the core of Satan's temptation is this lie. God is not good. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like God. If you disobey God, your life will be better than if you obey him. That's the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve, and that's the lie he's telling us. That God is not good, that you cannot trust him. And that lack of faith in God's goodness is at the root and core of every sin we commit. See, if God, I mean, if Satan can get us to doubt God's goodness, then he's won. He's won. Because you're never going to trust God, trust God with your life. You're never going to surrender. You're never going to obey him in the hard situations of your life if you doubt his goodness. That's why James says, don't be duped. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie. That somehow God isn't good or that God is withholding good from you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Another thing that happens when we begin to doubt God's goodness is that we subtly, almost imperceptibly, change positions with God. There's an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called God in the Dock. And the uh, dock in the English court system is where the defendant sat, the accused sat. And Lewis says that ancient man, they understood that they, the human beings, were in the dock and that God was the judge. But that modern people have now reversed roles with God, putting God in the dock and they are the judge. And Lewis says, you know that we've switched roles with God when we start calling God to account and asking him to give reasons for why he does what he did. God, why did my... Mom died when I was young. God, why did that tornado wipe out that town? God, why did my sister get an injury in a car wreck? God, why did I lose my job? And now he might give some good answers and you might buy him and believe him. Lewis says it really doesn't matter if you let God off the hook or not. The key thing happened when you took a place of moral superiority, and you thought you were in a position to judge and evaluate God and what he was up to. That's where the fundamental problem occurred. 
I know it's bad English, but it's almost like we think we are gooder than God, and we will evaluate him and let him off or not let him off, depending on what we, the moral righteous judge, deems fit and appropriate. So James, in contrast to that thinking, to counter that thinking, James sets before us a God who literally and actively and perpetually and generously gives good gifts to his children. All of us have received countless numbers of his gifts, but we don't recognize them. Psalm 16:2. I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. Can you say that to God right now in your heart? Every good thing, Lord, I have in my life comes from you. It didn't come from hard work. It didn't come from another person. I'm not the victim of circumstances or the luck of the draw. My life is in the hands of a good God. Martin Luther wrote this. Blessings at times come to us through our labors. And at times without our labors. But never because of our labors. For God always gives them because of his undeserved mercy. See, sometimes we work hard and... The good things are a fruit. They come through the hard work. Sometimes good things happen to us, and we have to admit we had nothing to do with it. But whether it's through our work or independent of our work, it is never because of our work. No, any good thing in our life, the Scripture is clear, came to us because of the goodness of God. And help us to get this. James calls, in James 1.17, he calls God our Father. He's trying to help us that what fathers want to do is give good, give good gifts to their children. And all he's doing is building on something Jesus said in Matthew 7. Which of you, Jesus asks, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, the answer is no good father's doing that. Heck, no bad father would do that. Or if he asked for a fish, we'd give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you, as a sinful father, know how to give good gifts to your children, if you had a sinful father who knew how to be good and kind to you, how much more a perfect heavenly father who loves to give good gifts? But unfortunately, we're so busy we're so distracted, we're so prideful that we somehow think we deserve it. We don't take time to celebrate what God has done. Deuteronomy 26, 11. Afterwards you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given to you in your household. See, there had to be time set aside to celebrate all the good things that God had done for them. Otherwise they might forget. So just for a second this morning, I want you to think about all the ways that God is good to you. Just take your life, and let's divide all our lives in thirds. I know we're all different ages, so it's a little bit different for each of us, but think in thirds. The first third of your life, how is God good to you? Did God give you parents that cared about you? Did God give you brothers and sisters to share life with? Maybe that's when you started going to school and God put you in a school with teachers that worked hard at their job. 
What about that second third of your life? It'll be different for all of us, but, but maybe somewhere in the first or second third in your life, that's where you really got your education. Maybe you were able to get a good job then and start providing. Maybe you met some really good friends and shared life with them. Or maybe you met a spouse. Maybe some of you in that second third of your life, you had a kid and you saw God's goodness to you there. What about this last third of your life? How have you seen God's goodness show up again and again and again? Now there's a danger here. There's a danger in all the good gifts God has given us, and that is this. Here's the danger. We might start to worship the gifts instead of the giver. We might start to worship the gift instead of the giver. Because all these good gifts God has given us are intended to lead us to Him. But we might get distracted by the gift and forget about the giver. It's like when my kids were little, sometimes my wife and I would give them a gift for the birthday or Christmas when they were really little, and they'd open it and they'd set the gift aside and start playing with the box. And you're like, whoa, I put a lot of time and money into that. Now, maybe that's just because we bought bad gifts. They didn't like the educational tapes we got them when they were little. <laughs> but you ever see a kid start playing with a box? They're, they're just fascinated by that box. Well, that's how we are sometimes. We start playing with the box, and we ignore the real gift God's given us. We start playing with a gift and we ignore the giver. But all those good gifts that God has given us are clues that we serve a good and generous and gracious God. And yet we're prone to enjoy sunsets and prone to enjoy walks on the beach and prone to view good movies or eat a good meal or look at good friends or look at a beautiful sunset or the stars in the sky and see them all like an atheist does. Yeah, we enjoy them, but we just enjoy them for the pleasure they bring at the moment. We forget that they are clues, that we serve a good and gracious God. We forget to look through the gifts and worship the giver. A couple more ways that we can apply this to our life. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name trust in you. Those who know the name of God, those who know who God is and what he's like, those who know his character and their attributes, they want to trust him. After becoming a Christian about a year or so after that time, I was in a little short-term mission project overseas. And all that summer, I wrestled with this question. Who's going to be Lord of my life? Is it going to be me or is it going to be the Lord? Who's going to run my life? It's a question that each of us face every day. Those who know the goodness of God want to surrender their life to Him. Surrendering your life to God and His will is the natural response of the heart that knows that God is good, that God is for you, that God is perfect, that God has blessed you with every good gift, that God never stops doing good to you. And then it makes us want to worship him. Psalm 107, verse 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. God is worthy of our worship. For he is good to us beyond measure. 
Invite the worship team to come back out because they're going to lead us in a song that will help direct our hearts to praise God for His goodness in our lives. But before we do that, I want to read a brief paragraph from Spurgeon. 1800s British preacher. says this, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartedly to give thanks unto the Lord because He is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless Him that He is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain, that God is good. His actions may vary, but His nature is always the same. Let's worship the Lord together. Won't you stand and sing with us?